When it comes to foreign policy, America isn't exactly well known for isolationism. Even after the US military's long overdue withdrawal from Afghanistan, 20 years after 9-11, the United States is still actively involved in the conflicts in Somalia, Syria, and Yemen. Prior to the present day, the 21st century was dominated by U.S. intervention in countries such as Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Pakistan, and Uganda. Going back further, the 1990s saw massive American intervention in Balkan countries such as Bosnia, Kosovo, and Serbia, as well as the Persian Gulf War in Kuwait and the invasion of Panama. Listen to the Operation Just Cause episode for more information about that. These conflicts were preceded by the disastrous Vietnam War and the not-as-disastrous Korean War. Before these came World War II, generally considered the last good war in American history, as it was fought against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Prior to this, World War I really defined America as a global superpower, which was not afraid to intervene in foreign wars. Wilsonianism, named for notable interventionist Woodrow Wilson, became the dominant form of American foreign policy. Prior to World War I, the U.S. government tried to sort of stay out of foreign affairs. In his prophetic farewell address, George Washington encouraged future presidents to avoid foreign entanglements. A few presidents later, the Monroe Doctrine ensured that America and Europe would not interfere with each other. However, Asian nations were not included in this doctrine, leading to not-so-peaceful American expeditions to China, Japan, and Korea. The Roosevelt Corollary doubled down on this trend of intervention, stating that the Monroe Doctrine gave America the right to intervene in Latin American affairs, insert Spanish-American war here. Even before the Monroe Doctrine, the U.S. military got itself into its first foreign conflict, and to talk about that, we'll need to talk about everyone's favorite maritime robbers, pirates. When most people think of pirates, they think of the golden age of piracy. You know, blackbeard, skull and crossbones, all that good stuff. Golden Age pirates, also known as buccaneers, were primarily English and French sailors who robbed military and cargo ships for financial gain. Buccaneers were most common in the late 17th century, and they generally operated in the Caribbean, as well as off the coast of South America, where they pillaged Spanish colonial cities. Initially, European nations, and later the young United States, cracked down heavily on pirates, punishing piracy by torture and execution. But, as the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. Near the end of the 17th century, the militaries of many countries began hiring pirates as paid mercenaries called privateers. Privateers basically did the same thing as pirates, just against the enemies of the country whose flag they sailed under. Privateers were extremely common in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, especially during the American Revolution and War of 1812. In 1856, the Declaration of Paris banned privateering under international law. However, this didn't stop the United States of America and the Confederate States of America both from using privateers during the American Civil War. The last known illegal privateers were hired in 1870, during the Franco-Prussian War. 
But as fans of the movie Captain Phillips know, good old piracy didn't go anywhere. Today, piracy is most common in the South China Sea, the Gulf of Guinea, and off the coast of Somalia. More recently, rival drug cartels have committed acts of piracy on Falcon Lake in South Texas, as this reservoir serves as a major route for trafficking narcotics from Mexico to the U.S. As opposed to Golden Age pirates, modern pirates utilize modern technology, including but not limited to automatic rifles, speedboats, and sonar. They have also realized that humans are more valuable than cargo, either through ransom or through human trafficking. Although they operated over two centuries ago, one group of pirates and privateers knew this very well, which ultimately caused the United States to go to war with them. I'm going to tell you all about it, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 52nd episode of this podcast, and I really hope you enjoy it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. One of the largest empires in history, at its peak, the Ottoman Empire ruled over vast swaths of the Middle East, North Africa, and Eastern Europe, collectively making up over half a million square miles of land area. The Ottoman Empire governed from its establishment in 1299 until its collapse in the aftermath of World War I in 1922. One area that the Ottomans ruled over was the Barbary Coast, which refers to the Mediterranean coast of Africa and includes parts of present-day Algeria, Libya, Morocco, and Tunisia. At the time, the Barbary Coast was inhabited by the Berbers, or Imazigan, a predominantly Sunni Muslim people group indigenous to pre-Arab North Africa. The Berbers administered the Ottoman client states of Tripolitania, Algiers, and Tunis. Similarly to the rest of the Ottoman Empire, the Barbary states had a large slave trade. Men were put into military servitude and forcibly converted to Islam if they did not already practice the faith, while women could be sold as sex slaves. In addition, both men and women could be indentured into the imperial harem, where they would be specially trained in domestic work for the sultan. However, unlike the rest of the Ottoman Empire, which primarily enslaved black people from sub-Saharan Africa, most slaves in the Barbary slave trade were white Christians from Europe. But if you know about geography, you'll know that the Mediterranean Sea separates the Barbary coast from Europe. So, you may ask, how did the Berbers capture and enslave Europeans? Well, this is where piracy comes back into the picture. The Barbary Corsairs were privateers enlisted by the Barbary states and sent to Europe to capture and enslave Christian civilians. 
Although merchant ships in the Mediterranean Sea were the primary target, the Barbary Corsairs also raided coastal cities in France, Italy, Portugal, and Spain, and they even raided coastal towns in countries as far north as the Netherlands, Scotland, and even Iceland. Simultaneously to the peak of Barbary piracy in the mid to late 18th century, the United States was in the process of gaining its own independence from the United Kingdom. Of course, the beginning of American history did not occur in a vacuum. Rather, the various countries of North Africa were at least marginally involved in the American Revolution, in the sense that the Barbary Corsairs sought the war as an opportunity to seize both American and British merchant ships and enslave their crewmen. In contrast to the Barbary states, the independent kingdom of Morocco was eager to assist the American independence movement. In 1777, Morocco actually became the first country in the world to establish diplomatic relations with the United States. These relations would later be formalized in 1786 with the Moroccan-American Treaty of Friendship. In this treaty, the Moroccan government banned any pirates from docking in Moroccan ports and stated that any enslaved American brought to a Moroccan port would automatically be freed. Unfortunately, Morocco stopped short of giving naval protection to American ships, similarly to what France had done under the Treaty of Alliance between 1778 and 1783. For this reason, attacks by Barbary Corsairs on American ships continued, and the new U.S. government spent thousands of dollars every year on ransom payments for American captives. President George Washington and Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson vehemently opposed these tributes, believing that this money would be better spent on protecting Americans with firepower. This plan came to fruition in 1794 with the establishment of a little something called the United States Navy. In the 1800 presidential election between Federalist incumbent John Adams and Democratic-Republican Vice President Thomas Jefferson, a key campaign issue was how to handle piracy off the Barbary Coast. Ultimately, Jefferson's support of military intervention in the Mediterranean led him to victory in the election. Just days into his presidency, Jefferson halted ransom payments to the Barbary Corsairs. Because of this, Yusuf Karamanli, the Pasha of Tripolitania, declared war on the United States on May 10, 1801. The First Barbary War had begun. The war started off mostly without actual fighting, as the U.S. Navy sent warships to blockade the port of Tripoli. The U.S. government appealed to Sweden and Sicily, two other countries heavily affected by Barbary piracy, and these nations soon entered the first Barbary War on the side of the U.S. In August of 1801, the first naval engagement took place when USS Enterprise captured the Tripolitanian ship Tripoli, suffering no casualties in the process. Arguably the most famous incident of the First Barbary War involved USS Philadelphia, an American sailing frigate captained by Princeton, New Jersey native William Bainbridge. After running aground in Tripoli on October 31, 1803, 
Philadelphia was captured by Barbary Corsairs, and her crew was captured and enslaved. To make matters worse, the Tripolitanians docked Philadelphia in the port of Tripoli, where they used it to deter other American warships. To prevent the Tripolitanians from utilizing Philadelphia, the Americans first recaptured USS Intrepid. They then disguised Intrepid as a merchant ship that could be easily seized by the Barbary Corsairs, and they intentionally sailed next to a Tripolitanian ship. In what was later referred to by British naval officer Horatio Nelson as, quote, the most bold and daring act of the age, the crew of Intrepid, led by Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, stormed USS Philadelphia, set it on fire, and jumped ship seconds before Philadelphia exploded. Although Philadelphia was now unable to be used by the Tripolitanians, Intrepid would soon meet a tragic fate. On July 14, 1804, Master Commandant Richard Summers packed Intrepid with explosives and sailed towards the port of Tripoli, hoping to destroy more Tripolitanian ships. But before this plan came to fruition, Intrepid was hit by enemy gunfire and exploded prematurely, killing all 54 crewmen on board, including Summers. The major turning point of the war in favor of the U.S. began on April 27, 1805, when U.S. Army troops under Lieutenant William Eaton, who had taken on the label of Marines, marched 521 miles through the Sahara to the city of Derna. This culminated in a brief battle, ending with the U.S. Army's capture of the city on May 13, 1805. The Battle of Derna was the first land battle fought by the U.S. military in a foreign nation since its independence, and it marked the first time that the American flag was hoisted over foreign soil. Less than a month later, on June 10, 1805, the U.S. and Tripolitania signed a peace treaty bringing an end to the First Barbary War. Under the provisions of the peace treaty, Tripolitania agreed to stop attacking American ships while the U.S. agreed to pay one final $60,000 ransom in exchange for the freedom of all Americans enslaved by the Tripolitanians. Supporters of the treaty, including President Jefferson, believed that the lives of Americans were far more valuable than the ransom that was paid. But opponents, such as Lieutenant Eaton, believed that the capture of Derna could have been used as a bargaining chip to end all piracy without any financial stipulations. The U.S. Navy and Marine Corps, which were founded to fight in the First Barbary War, remain as active branches of the U.S. military to this day. The Battle of Derna is memorialized in the first part of the Marines' hymn, which is as follows. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we fight our country's battle in the air, on land, and sea. After the end of the First Barbary War, the U.S. Navy maintained a presence off the Barbary Coast until 1807. But when this withdrawal happened, the issue of piracy returned in a different form. Although peace had been made with Tripolitania, Algiers, another Ottoman client state on the Barbary Coast, began attacking American ships with Barbary Corsairs. This time, though, the U.S. Navy could not respond because it was too busy dealing with the prelude to the War of 1812 with British Canada. 
It was not until the end of the war in 1815 that ships were sent to the Barbary Coast once again. The Second Barbary War was a two-day skirmish fought between the U.S. and Algiers in June of 1815. Although the U.S. Navy lost 40 troops over the course of the battle, the U.S. ultimately won the war. The peace treaty between the U.S. and Algiers affirmed that the U.S. government would pay no more ransom payments to Barbary Corsairs, marking the first time ever that the U.S. government enforced a policy of not financially negotiating with hostile enemies. The Barbary Corsairs faded into obscurity after the French conquest of present-day Algeria in 1830, but the slave trade in the rest of the Ottoman Empire continued. In 1909, most slaves in the empire were freed, with the exception of those owned by the ruling Ottoman dynasty. During the Armenian Genocide, Armenian women and girls in the Ottoman Empire were forced into sex slavery. When the Turkish Republic was founded in 1923, following the collapse of the empire, strides were made to ban slavery. However, it was not until 1964 that legislation was finally passed to end the former Ottoman slave trade. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I certainly enjoyed writing it. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.